0: Hopefully, we uh, have all had the opportunity and the chance to celebrate Thanksgiving. You've been refreshed. You've had food. You've rested. You've enjoyed company with others, and, uh, and you're looking forward to what God has in store. The verse that was on the screen, the, the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light, that's really what Advent is uh, in essence. It's coming to that place of celebrating that a light has dawned, that a new era has begun in celebrating the birth of Christ, and, and so... We are going through Advent this year to understand how is Advent meant to, to shape our hearts and minds together as a people, right? To, to, to direct our hearts back to God, to remember what he has done, to look at Christmas not as just this opportunity to celebrate this baby born in a manger, but more so to celebrate God's plan unfolding for us, his promises fulfilled in, in ways that, that we are just getting glimpses of. You know, Thanksgiving is a time where we're encouraged to to practice the gratitude of God fulfilling his promises in our lives, right? Paul says that we are to rejoice in all circumstances. And so we're not called to celebrate that Thanksgiving on one day a year, but rather as followers of Jesus, gratitude is a part of our character. It's a part of us that grows from the inside out, right? Now, I don't know about you, but, but I certainly need that to grow within me, that it's not something I necessarily feel like I live with every day. In fact, in the world we live in, I, I think I'm reminded more of the things I don't have than I'm being reminded of the things I do have. And so that's an important place where we lean into our relationship with Christ, to, to let him shape our faith to, to be one that's characterized by gratitude. It's why it's important that we gather as a church family to worship on Sunday mornings. We, we want to grow disciples here at Trinity. We want to do that by loving God, by loving others, by serving others, and, and by seeing our lives as this continual growth, to keep growing, right? So when we gather for worship, we encourage one another to love God more and more. When we gather in our smaller communities, we, we encourage one another to, to love one another, to get to know one another and then also to learn to serve one another, both in those communities, but then outside the church. It's important that we grow as disciples here at Trinity, and that happens when we gather together to encourage one another to grow in this area of gratitude. Hopefully you experience that when you come together and you, you get to know someone you're serving beside, or when you laugh together on Sunday mornings, when you enjoy the gift it is to be a part of the family of God. You know, the season of Advent is meant to have a similar purpose in growing disciples. It, it is certainly a time that as a church we celebrate, but it's also meant to be a time that, that it does a work of growing and shaping our hearts and minds after Jesus'. It, it's meant to, to grow our character like Jesus. Because Advent is learning to wait on a promise that God has made. It's learning to, to wait on that promise to be fulfilled. Last week we looked at John the Baptist's life. We, we looked at how he was someone who had a particular calling to proclaim a particular word in a particular place to a particular people. And so he was called to live in obedience to that calling while he waited eagerly on God to fulfill his promise. It wasn't glamorous, it wasn't climbing the ladder of, of success or achievement. It was faithfully waiting in the place that God had called him to, in a place of obedience. John was faithful to who God created him to be. And God calls us to be faithful to who he created us to be. I get it. We have aspirations. We have desires. And sometimes those desires are for greatness. But when we think about how we're being shaped in Christlikeness, I think we, we've got we to wrestle through times like this in the, in the life of the church when we can really ask the question, God, who have you created me to be? To what obedience are you calling me within your plan and within your kingdom? See, some of us have a, a calling to live a life of integrity and to live a life of faithfulness within their company that they serve and work in. Some of us are, are called to, to serve obediently on the mission field, somewhere either in this world, whether locally or globally. Some of us are called to, to serve as a faithful mother or father to raise up the next generation. We each have different callings, very specific to who we are. And, and I want us to be careful not to, to under-spiritualize our daily lives, right? Not to compartmentalize our relationship with Jesus, to being those 15 to 20 minutes early in the morning when we pray or read the Bible. Or those 15 minutes at the end of the day when we pray and give thanks for our day. That, that we, we don't under-spiritualize our daily lives and compartmentalize them and, and think that we're only being holy in those quiet moments of our day. But to understand that God is consistently and constantly at work shaping our hearts and minds after His. That we would look more and more like Jesus. See, we all have a calling to, to, to make disciples of Jesus, to make followers of Jesus, to make students of Jesus, to become more like Him. And we all play a role in that work in, within the church as well. We all need to see our lives not as being compartmentalized into our, our religious faith and our family and our vocation. But our faith is something that shapes who we are in each and every one of those spaces, and so we, we wait on God to do that work. This is not a work that we achieve in our own abilities, right? I mean, we want to think that we can better ourselves, that we can go to that section in the bookstore on, 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 on self help and self improvement and, and really make ourselves better, to seek to, to become better but we have to understand that this is a work of the Holy Spirit to fulfill a promise that he has made, to conform us to the image of his Son, to to make us like his Son, Jesus. That's what what it means to be a follower of Jesus, is to, to wait on God to fulfill his promises. And so in Advent, we wait on God as well. Because God has made some particular promises that he will fulfill. And in Advent, we don't look to hurry those promises along. We don't look to, 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 to feed our own desires and, 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 and to celebrate something that makes us feel good. We look to God and say, God, you've made some specific promises. And we want to see you fulfill them. And so we'll wait patiently but eagerly for you to fulfill what you have promised to do. Advent is is one of my favorite times of year. It it is a time uh, of of seeing the the amazing awesomeness of God in in reading through the narrative of Christ's birth and what happened. I love this time of year, but 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 at the same time, I can't enjoy the richness of this promise that God has fulfilled in Christ unless I go back to the beginning, and, and that's where we're going to start our Advent today because. I think that we can't have the good news unless we consider and acknowledge the bad news as well. Because what happens in Advent is the people of God have been waiting on God to fulfill a promise that he made to them way back at the beginning, when sin was birthed. So we're going we're gonna to be in Genesis chapter 3, and I want us to, to uh, look through this narrative in Genesis chapter 3, as both the place where, where sin was born, but also where hope, the seeds of hope, were planted. Hope is something we long for. That's, we live with hope in the season of Advent. And so in Genesis 3, we do see the birth of sin. We read the narrative of how Adam and Eve sinned against God, but we also, in the midst of that narrative, see God planting his seeds of hope in promising to rescue and redeem his people. So let me read for us. We're going to just read a couple of verses here in chapter 3, but, but we'll really look at the whole chapter in our time together. But, but here, I want us to focus in on, on verses 21 to 23 in Genesis chapter 3. We read this. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out, of the, out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Allow me to pray. Father, we do give you thanks that, that you have uh, given us your word that is faithful and fruitful, that it's abundant. Lord, I pray that your word would be productive in our hearts and minds today. That it would transform us from the inside out. That we would be a people who look more like you as a result of our time exploring your word, spending time in your word, worshiping you through your word this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like I said, we're, we're introduced to the narrative of sin in this passage. And I'll try to do something of a, a summary of the story. It, it's going to take us a little bit. But, but the reason why is I think we all know this story or I think a number of us know this story, but we don't like talking about it, right? We don't enjoy the fact, this is one of those areas in the Bible where we don't enjoy looking at the, 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 the narrative that characterizes our lives, all of our lives, right? For, uh, later on in the scriptures, Paul will say, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The, the, the sin we see here in Adam and Eve is true for us all. And so it's not really fun for us to look at, and I get that. But, but I also think that it's, it, it's one of those places that we can't avoid talking about as well, right? Uh, that it's not a place where we, we're supposed to kind of heap further guilt and shame on ourselves, but we look at these, these narratives to understand who we are before an awesome and holy God. And not just understand who we are, but, but understand what he will do to, to rescue the people that he loves, his people, right? Right? Within a, a, a legalistic context, sin is one of those things that, that, that is characterized as breaking a moral or legal code. You know, you, know, you speed, you get a ticket. You, you steal something, you get arrested. I mean, we, we get that. We understand that, right? That makes sense to us. Justice and righteousness within the context of a legal code. But it's also relational, right? Because sin also refers to the breaking of the covenant that people have with God. That, that, that sin is not just a matter of do's and don'ts. It's a matter of the the when God created a covenant with his people, it's, it's kind of the structure of their relationship. And, and so when, when, when we sin against God, we're breaking that, the agreement of this relationship, right? I was watching a show yesterday, and it, uh, there, these two guys, it was, it was a comedy, and they were, they were talking about being best friends. And one said, well, don't mess with my puzzle and, and don't lie to me, right? That's, that's kind of like his side of the covenant in that relationship, right? Don't mess with this puzzle. Don't lie to him. But the, 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 the fact is God has given us much more than that when we talk about a relationship with him. And when we sin against God, we, we break that, that covenantal relationship we have with God. I was taught growing up that, that sin really is anything that, that contradicts the, the, the will and character of God. It's not just things I do to disobey God. It's the things that, that actually conflict with His character. Have you ever thought about that? I know we like to think about sin in the context of uh, the Ten Commandments, these very clear laws, rules of, of obeying God. But have you ever put sin in the context of understanding who God is? God is merciful and gracious, He's righteous and just. He he's faithful. What happens when we're not faithful, right? When we're living our lives not like him, not as one of his, but as something that contradicts him, right? Like that—that's still living in sin when we conf- when, when we live our lives in a way in a manner that conflicts with the character of God. It's not just conflicting with his character. I mean, look at the world we live in: racism, bigotry. War, even things like sickness and death, I don't think that those are, are in agreement with the character of God. Right? This is sin. All these things that, that we see that are wrong with this world are wrong because of sin's entrance into creation through Adam and Eve. Right? And so our, our narrative here in Genesis 3 It doesn't really necessarily tell us the origin of evil, but it does tell us the beginning of mankind's interaction with evil, its relationship with evil. It tells us where mankind and sin go hand in hand. The vehicle upon which <clears throat> evil enters the world is through Satan, right? The, the serpent in our narrative. If you've read through Genesis chapter 3, you know that, that a serpent approaches Eve. A- a- and so when, they, when Adam and Eve are in the peace of the garden, enjoying what God has created for them, the serpent comes along, and, and the serpent is described, I think, funnily enough, a- as being more crafty than any other beast of the field. He's cunning. He's deceitful. He's clever. Later on in the New Testament, he's described as one who will kill, rob, and destroy. Do you believe that? Do you, I'm, and I'm not like, do you believe that he's described like that? I'm saying that like, do you believe that this is true? Do you believe that, 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 that there is such a thing as Satan, that he is a reality, and that he is in direct conflict with God, with God's character, with who God is. See, I, I, Satan is one who's actively trying to deceive God's people, to lead them astray. Is that, is that a reality? Is that a truth that you acknowledge in your life? Now, I know that sometimes we feel uneasy about thinking about these things because it, it, it ventures into uh, the, the world of, of spirituality that, that uh, some of us are not comfortable going there. But whether you are comfortable going there or not, the Bible does. Right? Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Satan is real. Satan is an advocate for sin. He's actively trying to dissuade, to, to distract, to deceive the people of God. And it's still going on today, even as it did back in Genesis chapter 3, where we see the, the, the actions of Satan so loud and clear in his interaction with Eve. See, all, all, the, all the serpent had to do there in Genesis chapter 3 was twist God's words was take what God had said and, and plant a seed of doubt in Eve's mind to make her question whether what God said was what she was doing or if maybe there was something else that she could do, right? See, just prior to when God created Eve, he, he had placed Adam in the Garden of Eden, and he told him to work it and keep it. And he, he also told him that he may eat of any tree, Right? But the words that Satan twists were words that were given to Adam in chapter 2. Listen to what he says about, what God says about this one special tree. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. See, these are the words that Satan twists when he confronts Eve. These are the words that Satan that, that, that say, wait a minute, did, did God actually say you can't eat of this tree? Did he, did he actually say you can't do that? You won't surely die, Eve. Come on. God knows this. He just doesn't want you to be as smart as, as, as he is. Right? Satan gets in her head and starts raising questions, twisting God's words, twisting the picture of the relationship that God has established with Adam and Eve and creating that doubt. But rest assured, it's not Satan's fault that she sins. Eve eats that fruit of her own will. She chooses to disobey God's command. She makes that choice of her own free will and then invites her husband to do the same. Look at verse six of chapter three. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. See, sin sin is as simple as this. God said you should not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and yet we don't care. We do it anyway, right? We do what feels right to us. We do what's right in our own eyes. It's like the scene from Finding Nemo. I don't know if, if you have any kids or grandkids that, that have enjoyed watching this movie, uh, but it's a, it's a movie about these two fish, well, more than two fish, but uh, this father and son fish in the ocean. And uh, the the son is adventurous, wants to go and do things, and and the father is nervous about losing his son. And, and so there's this one scene where Nemo, the son, swims off of the, the the ocean ledge. Right, he swims out into the sea a little bit, and his dad's freaking out. And his dad calls out, says, "Nemo, don't." And there's this boat there too, right? And dad says, "Nemo, don't you dare touch that boat." And Nemo looks his father in the eye, right? Well, I mean, he's turned away from the boat, looks his dad in the eye, and smacks the boat. You know, th- that, that's, that's a picture of sin, right? It's as simple as that. God said, don't do it, and yet we do it. We look him in the eye. We, can, we, we know right from wrong. I mean, I get it. There are, there are sins that, that we commit be, because of our ignorance. We just don't know any better, right? Right? But let's be honest, more often than not, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the struggle of our will here. I do what I want to do, God. So I'm going to look you in the eye. I hear your command. And I'm going to smack that boat anyway. As a result in the, the movie, I'm going to ruin the movie for you, by the way, by the end of the sermon. But as a result of the, in the movie, Nemo gets taken by some divers, right? Right? And he's taken away, and these divers take him halfway across the ocean. And the dad, the rest of the movie is the dad voyaging throughout the ocean trying to find his son, get, rescue his son back. Right? It's a great movie. Watch it sometime, even though you're going to know the ending. <clears throat> Adam and Eve, they look God right in the eye, just as Nemo did. Well, Nemo looked his father in the eye. And they take that fruit and they eat it. Look at, look at the verses in 7 and 10 of chapter 3. After this, we're told this. Then, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Right? They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Well, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. You notice what happens here in these verses? Yeah, yeah, Adam and Eve sin. They become aware of what they've done. They, they experience guilt and shame for the first time. They, they, they're aware of, for the first time, their nakedness. And out of fear of God they go and hide. Do you know what do you notice about the relationship between God and Adam and Eve at this point? They're hiding, but what is God doing? He's seeking them out. God's pursuing Adam and Eve in the midst of their sin when they're hiding in their guilt and their shame. See, I think in the midst of the bad news, people, we're getting a glimpse of the good news. We're getting a glimpse of the character of God who is gracious, who pursues us even when we are hiding in our guilt and our shame. When Adam and Eve hid in the bushes, God came looking for them. So I think, I think this, is, this is what we need to notice is God's Grace. It's an illustration of what God does when, when we're in our sin and our guilt and our shame. God comes looking for us. Paul describes this grace in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2. He says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God coming and looking for Adam and Eve is a gift. Right? They didn't do anything to, to earn uh, this conversation with God again, to earn the, uh, what, what we'll find out is a promise that will one day be fulfilled. They run away from God. God seeks them out. There's nothing that they have done to receive this, this relationship with God solely and only because of who God is, his character, his goodness, his graciousness. Now all this may... Uh, seem a bit confusing because we know what follows in this passage. Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden. That doesn't feel very gracious to you and to me, does it? Uh, but, but in the midst of this, uh, we see hope. In, in the midst of the consequences of, of Adam and Eve's sin, we see a message of, of hope. The seeds of hope are being planted in the very discipline for their disobedience that day in the garden. In verse 14, God curses the serpent. He says this, he says, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the the beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. See, this is the, this is the first time in our Bibles where the gospel message is communicated. The gospel really means, in, in, well, in Greek it means euangelion, which means good news, right? And, and so here there's good news. Here in the story of the relationship between the seed of the serpent and, and the seed of Eve it, it is, is good news, it's God's plan for how he will rescue and redeem, how he's going to save his people back from sin and death. See, so the, the battle that's being spoken of is one that's being anticipated in the future. It's a battle where the seed of the serpent would, would bite the seed of Eve on the heel. He would inflict a wound that would not be uh, deadly or, or I should say destructive and destroying, right? But the seed of Eve would crush the head Of the seed of the serpent, ending the seed of the serpent, right? Final destruction, destroyed, right? See, we know this moment as the moment when Jesus was crucified on the cross. Jesus is the seed of Eve. Jesus is the seed of Eve that God spoke of, and and actually the Gospels record his genealogy all the way back to Adam and Eve. There is certainly, if you've read the Gospel of Matthew, you know that there is a genealogy of, Matthew and, uh, of Jesus in Matthew. But if you read the genealogy in Luke, it's, it's taken from a little bit of a different perspective, and it leads all the way back to Adam. Listen to how Luke records it in Luke chapter 3, verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. I'm not going to read it all, but then if we skip down to the end of the passage in verse 38, we, we're continuing to read this uh, the lineage, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Jesus' lineage leads all the way back to Adam in the garden. He is the seed, the descendant of Adam and Eve, the one who would go to battle against the seed of the serpent. See, Satan's attack that day on the cross on Jesus was not fatal. For when he was dead three days in the grave, what happens? He came back to life. He defeats death. He defeats the grave. He defeats evil as he's raised to life again. Right? That's a nip on the heel. But but in defeating death... In overcoming death, in bearing the weight of the consequences of sin on his shoulders, on paying the price for sins, uh, for, the, for sin past, present, and future, he does away with the consequences of sin in the sense of the penalty being death, and that is destroyed, done in the sense that it's gone, it's crushed, it's no longer an enemy, but it's an enemy that's under his foot, controlled. By Jesus. See, Jesus' Jesus's death was fatal for sin and death. And so now we're promised to no longer be separated from God. Paul kind of gives a, a picture of the, the benefit of this promise in First Corinthians 15. He says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death... By a man has, all, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. See, Jesus destroys death. He, he, de- he deals a fatal blow. God's plan, his promise, way back in the garden, it, is unfolding in Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection. God has, has graciously planned for our rescue since that day in Genesis chapter 3. We cannot celebrate the birth of Christ without understanding why Christ has come. Christ has come because of the sin that enters into the world back in Genesis chapter 3. This, this is the seed of our hope. This, this is the seed of our hope. The the ending has been written to our story and it's a victory. And so not only did God promised that he would defeat Satan. Not only did he promise that, that he would crush the head of the serpent, but he also promised to rescue us, to redeem us, and, and to welcome us back into his presence and into his family. At the end of our passage, God does something very interesting. Just before he kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden, he clothes them. Look again at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and For his wife, garments of skin and clothed them. See, God God could have sent them out of the garden right then and there in their nakedness and their guilt, right? They were the ones that ate the fruit. They they were the ones that had their eyes open when they disobeyed God. They were the ones that, that, that chose to do what was right in their own hearts rather than to do what was right in God's eyes. But we know that God is rich in mercy. We know that God is slow to anger, that he's steadfast and loving. And so, so we know that this isn't the end of the story. When, when God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden, when he drives them out of the garden, he closed them as a way of saying, hey, this isn't the end of the story. I, I, I promise to one day defeat sin. But in defeating sin, I promise to one day welcome you back into the family. Through Christ alone. See, when God clothed Adam and Eve, he showed his hand. He gave mankind a glimpse of what his plan would be. And it's a sign of our hope that God would cover up our nakedness one day too. That he wouldn't just give us garments of skin, but that he would clothe us in the righteousness and peace of Christ. We read that throughout the New Testament numerous times. It says, put on Christ Jesus, right? Right? Put it on the character of Christ. One of my favorite stories in the New Testament, the prodigal son. What I love about it is not so much the younger son, but, but the father's response when the son comes home. He throws his, his cloak back on his son. It's a symbol of the, of the father's inheritance being his again. That he's a part of the family, that he's welcomed home. And so when, when God clothes Adam and Eve, he gives us A glimpse of the end of the story. God doesn't just put clothes on us, but He makes us a promise. He makes us a promise to to rescue His people from their wandering, to, to rescue them from being lost outside the garden, and to once again welcome mankind back into His presence. That's what that clothing represents. This promise of an inheritance that's ours through Christ. A rich inheritance. You know, at, at the end of the movie Finding Nemo, Marlon finds Nemo, right? He, he's traveled halfway across the, the ocean and, and he finds him. By the way, I'm, that's the, the ending. Hopefully I didn't ruin it for you. Hopefully you've already seen it. Uh, it's been out for a while, so if you haven't seen it, that's on you. Um, but Nemo... He has a run-in with sharks. He gets stung by jellyfish. He's in this unknown land where he's lost. He swims with sea turtles. He does so much more before finally rescuing his son. But but here's the thing. God does so much more than that, right? He, he, He humbly and sacrificially and lovingly leaves his place in heaven for us. He gives up his seat beside the Father to come and be with us and to not only be with us, to take on the form of mankind, but to suffer a death on the cross so that we might have peace with God again. Christ does so much more. God does so much more in sending his son to this earth. But we got to ask the question, why? we got to remember the why of why God sends his son. It's to deal with the sin we see back in Genesis chapter 3. Advent is about waiting for this promise that was made in Genesis 3 to be fulfilled. The promise that involves the, the seed of, the, of Eve crushing the head of the seed of the serpent. The, the promise that involves God clothing him, his people with a rich inheritance, the righteousness and character of Christ. This is the one who was born in a manger in Bethlehem. This is is who we've been waiting for. This is who we celebrate at Christmas. The one who came to die for our sins that we might have peace with God. Trinity, all the way back here in Genesis 3, we have seeds of hope. I want us to grab that hope. I want us to take hold of it. But, but in order for us to do that, we've got to acknowledge the, the, the bad news. You know what? There is no good news without bad news. It's just news at that point, right? I want good news. What do you want? Do you want news or do you want good news? I want good news. And if I'm going to have good news, I've got to recognize the bad news, which is a reality for me, that needs to be dealt with, but that can only be dealt with by the child who's born in a manger in Bethlehem. This is is truly the good news that we can celebrate. Hope is real. I hope we get that this this Christmas season. Hope is real. It's tangible. It's something we can hold on to. It's something that does a work in our lives that that transforms how we face this world. Trinity, I hope we live with hope. I hope you and I face each day with hope because we know that God has made some promises that he will fulfill, the greatest of which was born in a manger in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago. But that promise is not done because Christ has promised to return again. And that's a hope we can live with today to, to shape how we face this world and the things we do. But here's the thing. I I get it. I could I could stand up here and talk about these things until I'm blue in the face. But we have four people who I'd love for you to hear from. Four people who can share with you what it looks like for them to live with hope today. Let's take a look at their testimony.
1: that um, i really love doing with my kids is watching hero movies and i think in any good hero movie there's that that period of time in the movie where things just look so bad for the good guys how does it give me hope today yeah knowing that that there is hope bad guys winning usually with some diabolical laugh uh, good guys are giving up and saying, "I don't want to do this anymore." And when I get to that moment in the movie, my kids don't know how it ends, so they're freaking out. They're saying, "Dad, Dad, shut off the movie!" because they don't want to see the good guys lose. From what I've been through in my life up to now, and know Jesus, I know I know now that Jesus always been there with me and for me even when I didn't know he was there you know because I've been through a lot of pain and sorrow heartache but I know how it ends and I think in life knowing how the movie ends is amazing when I have conversations with people it helps helps me to try not to fall into the same but it's a struggle for me though the struggle is real for me every day at the end of the day ending is already
0: decided, so I'm just here to
1: see it. He is here. You know, he said he would never leave me nor forsake me. He would always be there with me or for me. You know, taking care of me. He's my great Emmanuel, God with us. But we have that confidence of knowing that in the end, at the end of the movie, Jesus Christ wins. And, that, and that's a pretty awesome feeling. It's pretty much the background. Yeah, for everything
0: I do, yeah. the, the blessing of being able to celebrate the birth of Christ, but because of what happens back in Genesis 3, because we have the promise that God will correct the, the sin that, that has entered into the world, we also have this opportunity to celebrate that Christ came, that he lived but that he also died on the cross for our sins. And that in his death, we also receive the atonement, the, 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 the covering of our sins. That in his resurrection, we might be clothed in his righteousness. That you and I, like Adam and Eve, would receive clothing from God. Clothing that he gave us through his son's death and resurrection. And so as we celebrate the Lord's Supper here at Trinity, uh, it, it's our privilege to invite all who have put their faith in Christ to celebrate with us. To, to celebrate this moment where we recognize and remember what Christ has done. That in taking of the bread and, and the wine, the, the juice, sorry, uh, that, that we, are, we are enacting the gospel message. Christ's body broken for us. Christ's blood shed for us that we might be clothed in his righteousness, that we might receive his forgiveness, that we might have peace again with God in the garden. And so this morning, we are invited to to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. As we remember that on the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.